Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As longtime listeners of the show know, each week I introduce the Torah portion, that section of the five books of Moses, which are read in synagogues and small groups of Jews every week. This week's parasha, this week's portion is called Vayera. And it's a very interesting portion. It follows upon last week's introduction of Abraham and his agreeing to a covenant with the one eternal God known as Adonai. In this week's parasha, which begins in chapter 18 of Genesis and continues through the end of chapter 22, God reveals himself to Abraham three days after Abraham's circumcision at age 99. But Abraham rushes off to prepare a meal for three guests who appear in the desert heat. One of the three, who are angels disguised as human beings, announces that in exactly one year, the barren Sarah, Abraham's wife, will give birth to a son, and Sarah laughs, the text tells us. The text continues with the well-known story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham pleads with God to spare the wicked city of Sodom. Two of the three disguised angels arrive in the doomed city, where Abraham's nephew Lot extends his hospitality to them and protects them from the evil intentions of a Sodomite mob. The two guests reveal that they have come to overturn the place and save Lot and his family. Lot's wife, according to the Torah, turns into a pillar of salt when she disobeys the command not to look back at the burning city as they flee. Later, Abraham moves to Gerar, where the Philistine king Abimelech takes Sarah, who is presented as Abraham's sister. A second time that this happens, earlier in Genesis, this was an exchange between Abraham, Sarah, and the Pharaoh of Egypt. God remembers his promise to Sarah and gives her and Abraham a son who is named Isaac. Yitzchak, which is usually translated as we will laugh, refers back to the promise by the angel which caused Sarah to laugh. Abraham is circumcised at the age of eight days. Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah as 90 at the time of their child's birth. Ishmael, the child of Abraham and Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden, uh, banished from Abraham's home and wanders in the desert. God hears the cry and saves their lives and promised a nation of his own. This rich and inclusive parasha ends by what is known in Hebrew as the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. God tests Abraham's devotion by commanding him to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. Isaac is bound and placed on the altar, and Abraham raises the knife to slaughter his only son, according to the text, 
though readers know that he is not the only son. A voice from heaven calls to him. A ram caught in the undergrowth by its horns is offered in Isaac's place. And Abraham receives the news of the birth of a daughter, Rebekah, to his nephew, Bituel. With me this morning to discuss this parasha, filled with interesting episodes and deep meaning, is Rabbi Elizabeth Bolton of Congregation Or Hanishama, Ottawa's Reconstructionist Community. Rabbi Bolton is a Montreal-born rabbi and cantor who began her career as a singer of classical music, spanning repertoire from the early music to the opera stage. Following a serendipitous opportunity to serve a reformed congregation as cantor in Toronto, she reoriented her path towards the Jewish communal leadership and applied to the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in Philadelphia. From 1999 to 2004, she created and directed the Music and Liturgy Project for the Jewish Reconstructionist Federation while serving as rabbi with Congregation Beth Tikva in Baltimore, Maryland. After 24 years in the United States, she returned to Canada in 2013 to serve Congregation Or Hanishama, becoming Ottawa's first woman and first queer congregational rabbi. It's a joy to have with us this morning Rabbi Elizabeth Bolton. Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here talking Torah with you. We are going to talk about Torah, but perhaps we can begin in an area that I know is of interest to you. Many of our listeners are adherents to Christianity and Judaism, and statistics tell us that some are adherents to Islam, and both all three of those traditions are often called the Abrahamic traditions. But in this week's Torah portion, Sarah Abraham's wife plays a significant role in almost all of the main plot lines, yet she seems to be ignored when we speak of the origin of uh, the three monotheistic traditions. So how do you see Sarah's role in uh, the Torah in this week's parasha, but also in the origin of the Abrahamic traditions? I, undoubtedly, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to answer you by saying I see it, her role as central, critical, vital, and yes, while maybe generally ignored because we don't use the moniker, say, the Abrahamic and Sarahist traditions, um, anytime there's a, a, a new kind of opening in terms of establishing uh, a, a religious uh, pathway, and certainly the establishment of, of uh, early Judaism was tr- was a critical uh, nation-building project. If you're going to build nations, you need to birth babies. <laughs> so uh, Sarah's place and Sarah's role surely was critical. From the first moment of the calling, uh, you your listeners may you know recall when in Parshat Lech Lecha, the uh, previous portion. Right. Uh, the call goes to uh, Avram, but very, very soon in the narrative, 
Avram and Sarai, his wife, are also invoked, and they both get a name change to Abraham and Sarah. And then here in our Parsha this week, Vayera, uh, Sarah's place, right from that beginning uh, that you spoke about in chapter 18, the um, the visit announcing uh you know, the impending birth of a child in her old age with Sarah's wonderful reaction, the laugh, um, interactions that she has with figures and also internally dialogue that we may not see in the sacred te- text is uh, surely critical. I, I would even venture to say, and, and this is not my innovation, that there is a a Sarah tradition, and that its presence in the sacred text certainly comes from, I believe, the historical reckoning with the shift from maybe a a multi-God faith orientation to a solo God faith orientation. So you've introduced two concepts which perhaps we should unpack a little. The first is when you use the term a Sarahitic tradition, are you referring to the biblical text or the Midrash, both modern and ancient? Uh, Great, great question. Certainly, uh, I'm going to say both, and they're both important. We have, for example, through the figure of Rashi, the, the, the medieval scholar, uh, and if you will, a biblical uh, interpreter and, and spokesperson you know, for the rabbis in terms of biblical commentary, he weaves, weaves in some ancient midrash in his commentaries on these verses that suggest and evoke that he's pulling threads of a Sarah tradition, which may be a leftover legacy from a pre-monotheistic era. Sar, Sarah, that even that word, that term, evokes a, a, a ruler status. We might even say a priestess. So you're suggesting that Sarai, who becomes Sarah, should be understood not simply in her role as wife, but in a royal capacity as the uh, partner in the origins of uh, the covenant between God and the Jewish people, since she is the mother of the Jewish people, and the mother uh, by degrees of the uh, of Ishmael. Yes? Is that what I hear I, you? I, absolutely. I, I, certainly Rashi himself, um, the, the medieval commentator, you know, drawing on the early tradition, um, would probably concur with the early, with feminist scholars who would say, that the matriarchs, starting with Sarah, represent, you know, a, a category of learned, wise women who knew the spiritual ways of their people, and then, literally, as you, as you say, through birthing 
you know, the the next generation of the of forefathers, as in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, played a, not only a, a, an important role, but a rather necessary role. Um, it's true that all three um, traditions, early monotheistic traditions, are patriarchal and certainly masculine in origin. But I seem to remember that even the rabbis, who, um, other than few exceptions, are male, um, are concerned about Sarah's voice not being uh, heard and not being recorded. Um, do you have a favorite midrash or a favorite commentary that seems to give voice to Sarah and her concerns during any of the episodes that we've been reading about this morning or talking about this morning? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> I absolutely do. I mean, I have many favorites, but I will home in on my, uh, you know, on my number one. Um, in uh, chapter uh, 21, so, um, well, there's that whole uh, segment um, very, very quickly compacted, you know, the, the, the announcement, Isaac's going to be born, he gets born, he gets circumcised. And then um, a, a very uh, pithy phrase in the Hebrew that says, uh, uh, Sarah nursed sons. Well, Henika Vanim Sarah. As far as we know, she did not birth multiple children. Hagar, as you referred to earlier, gave birth to Ishmael, Abraham's other son. So the rabbis in trying to deal with this uh, uh, this passage are wondering, you know, what's with the uh, multiple children? And they, uh, and they say, and Rashi also quotes this midrash from Breshit Rabbah, which is sort of from the very uh, earliest, most ancient layer of Midrash, that this notion of kind of Sarah as a, um, what's that term? You know, a, a, a nurse, a nursemaid, a wet nurse, rather. Wet That's nurse, yes. Wet nurse, right? Um, would indicate her her centrality and her power that the other women, this is their vision. They say, oh, the other women brought their children to Sarah, and she nursed them all. So for those who may be confused, Rabbi Bolton is not referring to something that words that we find in the book of Genesis. She's referring to the tradition that the rabbis have when there are questions that emerge in the text, when there are gaps that emerge in the text, the rabbis of every generation feel comfortable raising a question. And in this case, um, the question evolved out of the use of the plural. Uh, that it seems to suggest that there was more than one son. And since only one son is the birth of only one son is described, why does the biblical text use the plural? And the Midrash, as Rabbi Bolton correctly uh, indicates, 
suggests that the other women in the camp of Abraham saw her status and wanted their children to be nursed by her. Um, it is, of course, um, one of the most unusual aspects of the biblical tradition that um, Sarah's voice, which is somewhat muted, if not totally muted in the biblical text, finds great uh, vibrancy in the Midrashic text, as if the rabbis, even at their earliest stage, understood that Sarah needed to be treated with much greater respect and with much greater honor. Um, one of my favorite texts revolves around the story at the end of the parasha, where uh, Abraham is on a journey to sacrifice his own his son, Isaac. And the Midrash asks, what did Sarah think about this? Uh, you know, she has no voice. Was she in agreement with the son of her old age being taken on this journey? Was she in disagreement? And they write this fanciful story about um, Sarah and uh, the, what shall we call, Satan, that figure in rabbinic uh, life and in biblical life, which is always the utz, the little push um, for us to look at our other side of ourselves. Um, and Satan begins to question Sarah about, did she know about this? Did she uh, in any way support this? Um, how could she let the child of her old age go? And after um, this wonderful story, um, the biblical text, now the rabbis go back to the biblical text and remind us that after chapter 22, Sarah and Abraham never speak again. Well, in, indeed, because the beginning of the next chapter records her death. Correct. Uh, and so they suggest to us that the uh, juxtaposition of chapter 22 and then Sarah's death in chapter 24 is solely related to the events of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, that she is heartbroken that her son, the son of her old age, the son that has given her such joy that she can laugh, um, is almost offered as a sacrifice. And she can't bring herself to have any communication with Abraham. And of course, we know that that um, manifests itself often in the modern world when parents of children who have a, a near-death experience or whose child is suddenly uh, taken from them through tragedy, those parents often have a disruption in their relationship. And whether they speak to each other um, or not, it's never as it was before. Um, so I'm wondering, um, are there other comments that you'd like to make about uh, Sarah and the women of uh, the matriarchal tradition? Um, who are missing from our conversation about the Abrahamic tradition? Well, I, I think it, it would be, it's really important, in fact, for me to invoke Hagar and, and her role here. We have, <clears throat> pardon me, in, 
you know, in this Parsha, what, what appears to be, a, I mean, a very dramatic scene that at Sarah's, it seems, instigation, Hagar and Ishmael are banished to their certain death. Uh, we know that there is a divine intervention. The boy is rescued through, uh, and, and of course, Ishmael goes on to be the progenitor of his own nation, according to, uh, to our text. Um, so in terms of the two women, it, you know, it's, it's painful passage to our modern sensibilities, particularly. So- so let, me as a, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to remind our listeners that uh, Rabbi Bolton is ch- speaking of chapter 21, and the uh, chapter reads as follows. Sarah saw the son of Hargar, the Egyptian, she had been born to Abraham, making sport. We don't know exactly what that means. Except Wherefore, that it does use the same root word as the right, name Yitzchak. Right. So right. it says, Bini im Yitzchak. That, Does that mean he was laughing or laughing at? Wherefore, she said to Abraham, cast out the bondswoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son. I think it means equivalent, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight on account of his son. So the text seems to give us this sense that Abraham is not pleased with this request. And God says to Abraham, let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of the bondwoman. And all that Sarah saith thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called into thee. Again, one could ask, um, it's certainly Sarah's role is often remembered as the instigator. But the fact that God um, portrays her voice is, as the singular voice of um, covenant here is often ignored. And the text says, and also the son of the bondsman will I make a nation because he is my seed. So do you have a sense of why the text was so insistent that Sarah's voice be heard in this episode, but that we tend to ignore it in the retelling and only focus on the beginning? Well, of course. Sexism. <laughs> okay, well. But but let me actually suggest also, just to redeem uh, the, the tradition again, uh, the rabbinic, there's a strand of midrash, again, interpretation, that implies that it was Sarah and not Abraham who was really able to understand and internalize God's will and, and knew that in sending away this other child of Abraham, it would then fulfill uh, God's will and wish for, um, for, you know, the future of the people with whom God was to be in a covenantal relationship. So, Shema B'Kola, listen to her voice, Abraham, pay attention. That's how we're going to fulfill the covenant. I'm often struck by what comes next in chapter 21. So this whole story of Hagar uh, tells us um, about this uh, child of Abraham uh, and named Ishmael. And Sarah plays a significant role, as does uh, Hagar. 
it's almost as if the women have their central role in the spiritual life of both peoples that will emerge, the Israelites and the Islamic people. And then the text moves to after these things, Adonai Nisa et Abraham, and God tests Abraham, as if somehow God has already tested uh, Sarah and Hagar and found them able to pass the test, found them to be um, understanding of God's intentions for neither Hagar and Sarah uh, curse God. And so it's now time for Abraham to match their spiritual commitment. I find it to be a kind of an interesting uh, set of events in, in the manner of the chronology of the events seems to be really interesting. The women first, the women pass the test, and then it's up to the man to see if he's up to the challenge. Absolutely. I, I, that and that that scene with uh, God hearing uh, Hagar's voice in the desert in the wilderness, we get one of my absolute favorite biblical uh, uh, phrases um, that God um, heard the voice Ba'asher Husham, which I, I try to translate where he's at. That uh, to me is a, a talismanic reference for God being able to be present with um, all of us, wherever we are uh, in our suffering, in our joy, uh, and whatever our circumstances and our status. Uh, I think it's a wonderful uh, reminder that uh, God hears the voice of those who cry out to him, according to the text, with uh, true faith. Um, and that, you know, Hagar is presented as a woman of great faith in this passage. Um, and interestingly enough, even though Hagar and Ishmael are perceived to be the progenitors of the Mohammedan faith, who will at times, of course, be um, enemies of the Jewish people from the 8th century on. The rabbis uh, tell us that at the end of Genesis, um, when Abraham remarries, who does he remarry? But Hagar. Uh, the name that the Torah gives us is not Hagar, but the rabbis tell us um, that's the reason that uh, Ishmael and Isaac go to greet um, Abraham's new wife at his death, uh, because they know her, that she is, in effect, their mother in many ways. Uh, right. Hagar and Keturah being right. know, one considered right. one, one and the same. Person, one conflated into one individual. Yes, um, and there, go ahead. One last thought about that, you know, uh, leading into the next portion where uh, where that's more uh, explicit in the text. We also have Isaac and Ishmael coming together, as you say, to bury Abraham. They, they again, they, they don't seem to speak or connect otherwise ex from that, af that 
playful, not playful incident, but they come together wordlessly as two sons. Right. There's great, uh, the, the silence in the Torah is often underestimated. Um, you know, uh, we could go on to other portions. Um, I want to thank Rabbi uh, Elizabeth Bolton of Congregation Or Hanishama of Ottawa for helping us with a very unusual insight into Parashat Vayera. This week's conversation can be found as a podcast on iTunes or on the CHRI website. Um, for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, thanking again Rabbi Elizabeth Bolton, and wishing you, our listeners, a good day and shalom. Oh